back. Good morning, Grace. If you're visiting with us this morning, really glad you're here for a summer Sunday. We are in the Gospel of Luke, so I would encourage you to turn there to Luke chapter 22, where we'll be in just a minute. But when I saw that this morning Walt had us beginning in Hebrews with the reminder we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift, I was thankful because uh, the author of Hebrews wrote that letter because he had very similar concerns for those he was writing to as Jesus, we'll see, has for his disciples in this passage. If you remember where we were last two Sundays, it was the last Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, right? And he said he was really eager to, to share this Passover with them in particular because he was about to change it. This meal that for centuries had been a reminder of the exodus from Egypt where Israel was rescued from slavery, Jesus said, this is going to be a new meal. And from now on, these symbols of the wine and the bread will be reminders of my body that was given for you and my blood that was shed for you. And at that meal, as he was explaining to his disciples that he was about to have his blood shed and his body broken, um, he warned them that Satan wanted to sift them like wheat. He wanted to shake their faith. And, and, and Jesus said, and I've prayed for you, not just Peter, but for all, the, all of the disciples, that your faith would not fail. And that's why the author of Hebrews wrote his letter. He wrote to Christians who were being sifted by Satan. Persecution was getting intense, and they were, many were beginning to wonder if they really were in with Jesus, and they really signed up for this, and he wanted to encourage them uh, that their faith wouldn't fail. And as I've been thinking about this passage and us here at Grace, um, Satan's sifting work uh, never stops, does it? It's relentless. Satan's on 24-7 sifting duty. There's a, a growing list of names and prayer concerns that is on an elder email and, and our elder agendas that when every time we meet, it's there. It just keeps growing. And we prayed for many of these circumstances again this week as we met with our staff elders. And it struck me this week that every one of those situations for which we prayed is an opportunity our enemy, Satan, would love to use to sift you like we, to cause your faith to fail or at least to flounder Following Jesus is not easy, is it, friends? Jesus told us that was going to be the deal. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, it means denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following him. And this isn't something, as we're going to see in this passage, that we do in our own strength. We are deeply dependent on, the, on our Father in heaven to strengthen us to follow Jesus like this. We follow a strong Savior, even though at a moment here in our passage, he's going to look weak. I think we're going to see he's actually at his strongest. And he literally denied himself, took up a literal cross to rescue us and redeem us, and he's committed to getting us home. So that's why we're gathered here this morning, for him to keep helping us forward. Let me read our scene, two scenes really, all taking place in in the garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. 
Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. This immediately after that upper room meal. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to kiss Jesus, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who'd come out against him, have you come out against, as, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness we pray. Father, I pray like Jesus prayed at that last meal. Holy Father, keep us in your name. Keep us in your name. Lord, we thank you that your will is perfect. And one day in the end, we will look back, all of us, and no one will argue that your will was not best and right and purposeful, but Lord, it's hard to follow when it's hard to see that will. I pray you would help us to follow our Savior here in will, uh, humbly and gladly submitting our will to your will for this life. Lord, encourage us from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's how I want to break this passage up. Three things I want us to see in Jesus here this morning. I want us to see the Lord's care for his disciples and for us, the Lord's prayer, and the Lord's hour. Sorry, that one doesn't rhyme, but it's a, a word in the text right there, and it's a good one. The Lord's hour. So the Lord's care, his prayer, and then the Lord's hour. We'll start with the Lord's care. The first scene here, bookending Jesus' prayer, we see Jesus in his hour of anguish 
and he's concerned for his disciples. You would think at this point he would be just tunnel vision about what's facing him. But even in this desperate hour, his heart is not just looking to his own interests, but the interests of his beloved disciples. Isn't that amazing? Before and after he prays on his knees in the garden, twice he's looking at them saying, pray that you might not enter into temptation. He's concerned for their faith and how they're going to weather the events that are about to happen. He's told them, Satan is about to sift you like wheat. There's already been one defector named Judas. And so he urges them to pray. Notice he doesn't just say, don't enter into temptation as if that's something they just can muscle out of sheer willpower. He says, no, pray. Temptation is coming. Pray that you may not enter into it. Call on the one who can strengthen you to resist temptation, to submit to my will. And as we'll see from Jesus' prayer, it happens through prayerful dependence. That's how Jesus submits himself to the Father's will and obeys perfectly and resists temptation himself at this ultimate hour of anguish in the garden. And that's what he calls on them to do and us to do, pray. Not my will but yours. In the midst of his own anguish, Jesus urges them to do for themselves what he's already been doing for them. He says, I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And now he says, you pray that your faith will not fail. But they still just don't seem to get the gravity of what is about to happen and how desperately they need to pray. And we see them at the end of this first scene, rather than praying earnestly like Jesus, they've fallen asleep from their sorrow. Can you, can you relate with that? Times of sorrow in your life that is, that is just exhausting. And, and, you, and you feel the need to pray, but it just, it, it, all you can do is just, I think the disciples are just worn out. But what they don't do, we see Jesus do. They pray. Jesus knows what's ahead for him, and it shows. In these four verses here, Luke 22, 41 through 44, we see a side of Jesus that we've not seen in the gospel of Luke. And I don't think we see this side of Jesus quite like this, even through the rest of his suffering. This is this intimate glimpse of the interior life and heart of Jesus in his hour where it's all coming, wrestling with the Father in prayer, intensely feeling the pull of his human nature to self-protect rather than self-sacrifice, which is why he's come. We see Jesus recoiling in horror at the suffering ahead of him, Yes, physical suffering of crucifixion and the physical pain he's going to endure, but far greater than that, the sinless son of God, God is about to make him be sin who knew no sin in order to make us the ability to become the righteousness of God. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. Jesus is about to be sin who knew no sin. And there's a horror that he feels in his soul as he anticipates it. So as he prays here, I want us to realize he's praying as our representative and as our example, both. He's, we're watching him 
work out our justification. He is obeying to the very end so that that righteousness can be counted as ours, though we've failed. His prayer and wrestling that he might not enter into temptation is accomplishing for us our justification, but he's also modeling for us the way then he intends to sanctify us. He's showing us how to prayerfully rely on the Father to help us fight temptation and submit our lives in increasing degrees to his, his will. I think that's why Luke bookends Jesus' prayer with this command twice, pray that you might not enter into temptation, and then we see Jesus do the very thing he commands successfully. So that's the first point. Just in his darkest hour, here's Jesus caring for his disciples, even in his prayer on his knees sweating bullets He's caring for the disciples and for us, for all those, John 17 says, who would believe in him through their word. That's us right here today. We see Jesus care for us here. But look at his prayer. Verses 41 through 44. The Lord's Prayer. You know, we, we think of the Lord's Prayer as when the disciples said, teach us to pray, and he teaches them, Father, Hallowed be your name. Really, that should be called the disciples' prayer, right? That's, he's teaching them how to pray. Jesus never needed to pray, forgive us, forgive me my debts, right? But here, this is Jesus' prayer, his intimate prayer with the Father crying out in his moment of greatest need. And listen to the words. It's a petition, a request sandwiched in submission, bookended with submission and a yielding to the Father's divine will. But here's the petition. Father, remove this cup from me. Jesus prayed and asked the Father, remove this cup from me. This cup is a metaphor. The cup is a metaphor throughout the Old Testament for the wrath of God poured out in judgment. When the prophets would describe for example, Israel being handed over to judgment, it would be described as them being forced to drink the cup of God's wrath. When we see God's wrath poured out in judgment at times in the history of the Old Testament, it usually includes one or both of these things, driven out of his presence and the place of his blessing, like think Adam and Eve being pushed out of the garden, or being delivered over into the hands of enemies like Israel, being handed over to Nebuchadnezzar and carried off into exile in Babylon. And so when Jesus prays, remove this cup from me, he realizes that what's ahead of him is he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place. In his human nature at the cross, Jesus will experience both of those realities in his humanity, he will be delivered into the hands of wicked men and treated as a criminal, though innocent. And then as he hangs on the cross, innocent, the heavens will remain silent and God will not intervene to vindicate him. Jesus will feel the delivering over to enemies and, and, and the, the withdrawal of God's protection and blessing the Father will allow him to remain on the cross. Now, let's not get this wrong. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, can't be broken up. When we sing in that hymn, 
We didn't sing it this morning, but how great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. That doesn't mean that at any time ever, the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, temporarily was cut off from father and spirit. That just is impossible. But through the incarnation, as the son takes a complete, real human nature with a human will, he can experience at the cross the feeling and the experience of God's wrath being poured out on himself as our representative, as one of us, as a human being. So while his divine will as the son was always perfectly aligned with the father's will, in his human nature, he could be so terrified anticipating the experience of the suffering ahead of him that he could feel this desire to self-protect. It must have been fierce, right? Nevertheless, I want us to not miss, even in his human nature, Jesus also had the human will to glorify the Father and submit to his will. In John 4, Jesus tells his disciples, my food is to do the will of the Father. That's not just his divine will. That's his human will as our representative. So even as Jesus is praying, Father, remove this cup, um, his greater desire, no matter how this shakes down, is that the Father's will would be done and the Father would be glorified. Which is why his petition is bookended with submission. Look at it. On either side of the request to remove the cup, Jesus says, if you are willing, Father, if you are willing, remove the cup. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Having confessed his human nature's will to avoid the suffering and drinking the cup, nevertheless means, when Jesus says nevertheless, that means that his human will to carry out the Father's will was greater than any internal desire to avoid the cross. I want to pause here and just make sure we're clear. I'm, I'm thankful that we know Jesus' prayer right here because it gives us tremendous freedom to pray as we face things in our life that are excruciating. Now, we will never drink a cup like Jesus, but that doesn't mean that as the Father's will is worked out in our life, we will not experience suffering and trials that are deeply painful. And the Lord's Prayer here invites us to feel the freedom to pray like he did. Petition and submission. Father, if you're willing, remove this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He wants us to pray both. Maybe this morning, when the service is over, you, you want to come to one of our prayer team or someone nearby you, and this morning, you want to take that prayer of Jesus and apply it to something going on in your life right now. Father, if you're willing, would you remove this from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We can pray that way. Jesus did. But Jesus gets an answer in verse 43. We actually see Jesus' prayer answered. Verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So the answer was not to remove the cup. The answer was to be strengthened to drink it. 
That's how the father responded to Jesus' prayer. Now, I know the word temptation isn't used anywhere in here by Luke, but uh, what Jesus is going through is absolutely, I think, we are to understand this as Jesus' most intense moment of temptation in his earthly life as a man. Think about, do you remember when Peter rebuked Jesus? By the way, that's a terrible thing to ever do, rebuke Jesus. That's just two words that shouldn't go together. But Peter one time rebuked Jesus. Jesus was predicting on one of those occasions that he was going to suffer many things and be handed over and be killed. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. That will never happen to you. Do you remember what Jesus said? That's exactly what he said. Get behind me, Satan. He heard in Peter's words the tempting voice of Satan whispering to avoid the cross, to abandon the path the Father has sent you to walk. And he said, I I don't need that. That's That's not seeing things as God sees them, Peter. That's why I think what we see in Jesus' prayer here wrestling in the garden is his intense moment of temptation. As his human will is recoiling at what looms ahead, there's this desire that these things not happen to him. But he prays and the Father strengthens him through an angel. We're not told how, we're not told what the angel did or said, but regardless, it strengthened Jesus' resolve in that moment to stay the course. Like he told the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus prayed, and and God strengthened Jesus to not enter into temptation. And notice this in verse 44. Having been strengthened then, his prayer gets more intense. We might expect verse 43 to come after verse 44, but it's just the opposite. The angel appears to strengthen Jesus for this battle in prayer. The angel doesn't show up to refresh and relieve him after the battle. The answer of God's prayer is to steal him to pray with this intensity. It says, being in agony, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground as he prayed even more earnestly, it says. His emotional anguish is so severe that it's physically taking a toll on his body. Just trust me on this. There's been more ink spilled over whether Jesus literally sweat drops of blood or sweat so profusely that it was like drops of blood. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. (laughs) The point is the intensity of what Jesus is experiencing on his way to the cross. And I want us to, to not make the mistake here. It may appear when Jesus looks like this that he's at his moment of weakness but it's not weakness. The angel has just come and strengthened him for what we're seeing him do. You know, many have pointed out over the years that Christians for centuries have been martyrs and faced horrific deaths with seemingly more courage than what we see Jesus exhibiting here in the garden. For example, one of the earliest martyrs, Polycarp, he was a disciple of John, the apostle, Bishop of Smyrna, which is now in Turkey, and he was burned at the stake. And as he was threatened with being burned at the stake unless he recanted his faith, recanted the name of Christ, he said, for 80 and six years have I been his servant, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. 
you do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. (laughs) And they did. Apparently, as he didn't burn, they stabbed him to death. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were English reformers burned at the stake in Oxford, England in 1555. Betsy and I stood with Eric and Donna years ago on this little brick cross in the middle of the street where it happened, the only little marker there uh, of where this horrible death happened. But as they were facing being burned at the stake, Hugh Latimer turned to his partner, Nicholas Ridley, and said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Amazing courage, right? So why is Jesus coming undone in the face of his death? Well, here's why. The cup. Polycarp wasn't facing the cup. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, they weren't facing the cup. Every saint who has ever faced a grisly death for the sake of the name of Jesus has done so with the hope of heaven and resurrection. That's why Polycarp could say, fire is going to burn for an hour, and then it's glory. But Jesus was facing the wrath of God, a cup that no one has ever drunk. That's why we see Jesus the way we see him here. And he prays more earnestly. Notice this. It wasn't just a one-and-done prayer not to enter into temptation. If you look at Mark and Matthew's accounts, they both say three cycles of this where Jesus came and checked on the disciples and then went back to his knees and prayed more earnestly and prayed more earnestly. We're watching Jesus having been strengthened, fighting to obey the Father's will to the very end. This is a powerful image of Jesus' strength, not weakness. I was reminded of this line from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity about temptation. Maybe you've read this before. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. (laughs) They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us till we try to fight it. And Christ, by the way, who had no evil impulse within him, but he could be tempted. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Or as Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, we're seeing how Jesus learned obedience. Familiar with that phrase? Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. I think he's talking about the garden here. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect then, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Let's not misunderstand that Jesus learned obedience. That's not the way we learn obedience, by growing out of disobedience into obedience. Jesus never sinned. He had no disobedience to grow out of. 
but he learned obedience, meaning he moved from untested obedience through suffering into tested and proven and accomplished obedience, a perfect righteousness that then God can count to us by grace through faith. One commentator said, the most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels actually occurs right here at Golgotha and not at, or sorry, it doesn't occur at Golgotha, but right here at Gethsemane. He says, in his decision to submit to the Father's redemptive will, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus' soul is crucified. On the Mount of Calvary, his body is surrendered. In other words, I, I, and I agree with him, the intense battle, I think, was fought here. As we, as we are going to, in the next few weeks, walk through and watch Jesus walk to the cross, it will be painful. It won't be the last tears that Jesus sheds, but there's a unique agony here in the garden that seems like once Jesus gets up, rises from prayer, and, 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 and marches toward his accusers, he's re- resolute. So that's the answer to Jesus' prayer. What's the message of Jesus' prayer? In other words, before we move on here, as we witness Jesus agonizing in prayer here, as he endures and submits himself to the Father's will, what do we see? What should that remind us and help us understand? Three things. First, the Garden of Gethsemane shows us how great the guilt of our sin is. We've got, we have to get this. As great as looking at the cross and seeing what Jesus suffered in our place tells us that's what sin deserved. When we see how Jesus felt about the anticipation of paying that cost, it also should tell us the seriousness of our sin. I was thinking of this hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. This is thinking about Jesus on the cross, but think about how this applies as we look at Jesus in the garden. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature Rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. This is the word, the Lord's anointed. Son of man, son of God. Jesus' anticipation of drinking the cup made his knees buckle, his heart tremble, and he sweat bullets. Do we feel the appropriate weight of the guilt of our sin? When we're looking at Jesus in the garden on his knees before the Father, how can we dismiss or justify or minimize or trivialize or flirt with sin? Do you want to hate sin like God hates sin? I do. Go to Gethsemane. Look at Jesus here, trembling at paying the cost our sin deserves, and it will help us hate sin, and love the will of the Father. Second thing that Jesus' prayer shows us, it shows us how great Jesus' love for the Father is, right? How great Jesus' love for the glory of the Father to be seen. When Jesus prays, nevertheless, not my will but yours, it's magnifying his love for the Father. We're getting a glimpse of the love within the Trinity, of the Son for the Father, There is something about the heart of the Father and his compassion and his desire to show grace and redeem, to be just, the one who does not let sin go unpunished, but simultaneously is the justifier who mercifully makes provision so that we don't have to drink the cup of wrath we deserve. Jesus is eager for that glory of God to be seen. 
That's why he prays in John 17, Father, the hours come, glorify your son so that the son might glorify you. He wanted the world to see the glory of the father who redeems wicked people. That's one of the great ironies of the cross when we think about it, is at the very moment when the heavens were silent and all the crowds were wagging their heads and thinking surely this was a sign that God's frown is upon this guy. God couldn't have been more pleased with the son. Jesus was glorifying the father in that moment that seemed to be shameful. We don't just see how much Jesus loves the Father, but we also in the garden see how great Jesus' love for lost sinners is, right? Friends, do you struggle to really believe deep down in your soul that Jesus loves you? You look at yourself, your interior life, your attitudes, the sin, the doubts, backslidings, failings, and you just wonder, does he really love me? Well, his nevertheless also magnifies his great love for you. When it came right down to it, Jesus' internal desire in his human nature for the cup to be removed from him was eclipsed by his desire that the cup be removed from you. Now, he did despise the shame, Hebrews tells us, but he did it for the joy set before him. And if you remember a few chapters back, parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep tell us that one of the great joys set before Jesus was the joy resounding in heaven each time a sinner repents and is forgiven because of what Jesus did at the cross. He loves you. Look at verse 45, it seems as if, like when Jesus rises from prayer, the struggle with temptation is over. There's this resolve. I was thinking, it's been years since I saw it, but I love the opening scene in the film, The Passion of the Christ. In fact, I remember being at the Harvest Crusade at Angel Stadium once hot summer night, and they showed the the preview for that movie film that was going to be coming out, which was this opening scene. And if you don't remember it, The movie starts right here in the garden, in the dark, with the clouds covering up the moon, and Jesus is on his knees, and he's sweating, and he's praying to the Father. Now, they take poetic license. This isn't literally what is described here, but Satan is there, physically present, whispering words of lies and discouragement into Jesus' ear. He's saying, no man can carry this weight. No one can do this alone. It's far too heavy. Saving their souls is too costly. And as he speaks, a snake slithers out from the cloak of Satan and is winding around Jesus' feet as he prays. And when Jesus finishes praying in the scene, he slowly stands up and he looks Satan in the eye. Do you remember? And he brings his foot down on the head of this snake and he turns and the torches are coming through the woods with Judas and the crowd. It's a powerful moment. It's making a theological point. It's saying that moment in Genesis 3 that God said would happen, that he would bite the son of the woman's heel, but he would crush his head. I think the film is making an observation that here in the garden, when Jesus rose from prayer and walked to meet his accusers and and betrayers, the battle was over. It was just a matter of paying the cost. 
So look at this last scene here. The Lord's hour. The subheading in your Bible, if it's like mine, calls this section the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. But Jesus is anything but a passive victim in this scene that plays out in three steps. Judas may be betraying Jesus into the hands of accusers, but Jesus had already said at the table that night, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And despite the disciples' hasty attempt to turn this into a moment of revolution, Jesus corrects them, remains on the course to establish God's kingdom his way through the cross. And he's not really arrested as much as he gives himself willingly, peacefully into the hands of his accusers to carry out their hour, which is really his hour. Look at verses 47 to 53. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I love that Jesus says to him, refers to himself as the Son of Man. He doesn't just say, you're going to do this, you're going to betray the Son of Man, Judas? Do you still not understand who I am? The one Daniel saw and spoke of in a vision, one like a son of man to whom was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Judas, you would betray him with a kiss under the pretense that you love me? But as sickening as it was, as saddened as I'm sure it was, this is one whom Jesus had selected to be in the very inner circle with him. He was not surprised. If you remember at the very beginning of this passage in verse 39, Jesus is in this garden as was his custom. Think about it. Once Judas had snuck out of that meal to go do what he was going to do, Jesus could have gone anywhere with his disciples. Where did he go? He went to the place that was his custom where Judas would have known he was. This isn't an accident. He went to where Judas would have known he would have been. This is very much Jesus' hour here. He is in control. Look at verse 49 through 51. Remember when Peter said he was ready to go to prison and death with Jesus? He wasn't entirely wrong, right? John, in his gospel, identifies the mysterious ear uh, slicer as Peter. He's the one who asks the question, doesn't wait for Jesus' answer, and then just goes in swinging the sword, and he cuts off the ear of the chief priest's servant, right? But when Jesus says, no more of this, and he heals the servant's ear and makes it very clear that he's surrendering himself willfully, he's even mercifully willing to heal one of his captors, that's when they scatter like Jesus had said they would. He said, they're going to strike the sheep, shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, It seems like they were willing to follow Jesus into battle, but not so sure about following Jesus into sacrifice. They would eventually, after the resurrection, be very willing to follow Jesus into sacrifice, but not in this hour. In this hour, Jesus is alone to deny himself, take up his cross, and finish the fight. And look at the last two verses, 52 and 53. He gives himself willingly to his accusers. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. 
In other words, I think he's saying if, if they had any legal grounds to arrest Jesus, they wouldn't have come by night. They would have done it right out in the light of day on the level. But they're here at night under the cover of darkness because this is shady. <laughs> they don't have a claim on Jesus, and they know it. And the deeds they're carrying out under the cover of night, they're in league with Satan. They're in league with the powers of darkness, Jesus says. But great news for us in this. Here's what I want to finish. Two amazing truths here in this last line. When Jesus says to them, uh, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Number one, evil's greatest hour was meant by God for our greatest good. I'll say it again. If this is evil's greatest hour, we come to understand that it was intended, ordained, predestined by God to accomplish the greatest good ever. Every minute of evil's hour was the Lord's hour. In the Gospel of John, it repeatedly refers to this hour of Jesus going to the cross, not as the, the hour of the, these wicked people who put him there, but as his hour. Jesus is coming to his hour. This is his hour. That's how John, he talked about it in John. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it back up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I've received from my father. Disciples couldn't see it here. But after the resurrection in Acts 4, it all became crystal clear whose hour that really was. Do you remember in Acts 4, Peter and John got hauled in before some of the same powers of darkness in Jerusalem because they wouldn't stop teaching about Jesus. And they were beaten and they were threatened and sent out. Don't keep teaching in the name of Jesus. And they went to, their, to the early church and they prayed. And here's how they prayed. Truly, they said, God, in this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yes, they were guilty, but this was God's plan. So if God's greatest good was worked out through evil's greatest hour, what can't we trust him with, Grace? Everything. Everything. What trials and sufferings can we not endure with the knowledge, with this clear picture of God can make that evil hour accomplish his perfect purposes? Surely he can do the same in these and what adds the encouragement here is evil's hour is limited by God. I, I love this. I love how, how small it is. This is your hour, he says. Evil has its hour, which means it has an expiration date. <laughs> the power of darkness will have its hour, but there's a day coming on God's calendar when he will say, that's enough. That's enough eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For now, light momentary affliction. I can't wait for that day. Can you? Let me pray. Holy Father, loving Father, uh, keep us in your name. Help our faith not to fail.
Lord, there's things that some of us are in right now that are threatening that, Lord. I pray you'd strengthen us by your spirit. There are things ahead for many of us that we don't yet see coming, but it's coming. And we pray, Lord, in anticipation of whatever evil day might be ahead until Jesus returns that you would keep us in your name. You would help us to pray, depending on you, that we might not enter into temptation and that we'd follow you faithfully with your help in Jesus' name. Amen.